Oh Father, as we come to your word today, we do ask, Lord, that you would do your work in us through it, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us conviction, Lord, that you would show us how desperately we need Christ, and also that we would see how great your love for your people truly is. So use this time, Lord, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to convict us if necessary, and to make us more and more like Christ. For His glory we pray. Amen. Well, we will be continuing our study of the parables today, so if you have a Bible with you, we are going to be looking in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, if you got your Bible from out in the foyer, it's page 874, and we'll be looking at the parable of the lost sheep today. You know, they say that you don't know how much you love something, how much you value something until you lose it. And as I think about that principle, I think back to a time when we were living in Arkansas, and I had a bike stolen from right in front of our house. I I parked it in the driveway, I put it in the driveway, and it was gone. But I've never been much of a bike rider, so when the bike went missing, I didn't lose any sleep over it. It didn't really bother me. I didn't even call the police. But contrast that with how most of us feel when you lose your keys, or, or worse than that, when you misplace your cell phone or your tablet. I mean, that's, that's the end of the world, or it's close, right? You know, I, I get a little bit more frantic with those types of things, when those types of things go missing. And sometimes not only will I, will I lose sleep, uh, but I won't even try to sleep until I find what I had lost. Think of it this way. If your house is on fire, if you wake up in the middle of the night and your house is on fire, what do you grab first on your way out? Now, if you're a parent, you'll probably, hopefully, you'll say the kids, right? Um, Or or if not, maybe your pets. Uh, After that, you know, it used to be that you you would grab pictures. You'd grab your, your photo albums because those things were unreplaceable. They're irreplaceable. But after that, you know, maybe you grab your, your laptop or your, your cell phone or whatever you feel like you absolutely cannot lose. That's how you can tell what matters most to you, what possessions matter most to you. But conversely, the way to see what doesn't matter to you is to think about that scenario and think what's the last thing that you would grab. If you were to empty out your whole house, what's the last thing that you would bring with you. You don't know how much you value something until you lose it. And when you do find it, you're reminded of how much that item means to you. And this is a truth that has completely transcended history. Losing things is is certainly not a new phenomenon. By any means, people have always misplaced things. People have always lost things. They've always had the same reaction that we have today. They search for the things that they value that were lost, and they breathe a sigh of relief, or they, they rejoice when they found what was lost. The question is, what do you rejoice over? What causes your heart to leap? What causes your soul to rejoice? Because what you rejoice over says a lot about what you value. And we need to know that heaven 
and earth, heaven and the world, could not be much more different in terms of what causes rejoicing. Fallen man will rejoice over all kinds of things. Fallen man will rejoice over sin. Fallen man will rejoice over his own rebellion. He'll rejoice over injustice. He'll rejoice over his own accomplishments. Fallen man rejoices over all the wrong things. Fallen man will sometimes rejoice over, over good and right things. Things like justice. Things like kindness. Maybe you got a, a pay raise and, and you feel happy about it. That's, that's good. That's natural. Or maybe you got a job promotion. Or maybe an anniversary. You know, those things are, are good. But that doesn't show how good we are. All that does is it shows how inconsistent we are because man, fallen man, will celebrate the wicked and the good. It's hard to imagine that God, as He looks down upon the earth, that He would find anything to rejoice in, isn't it? When you think about the way that sin completely permeates absolutely everything, it convolutes absolutely everything, it contaminates absolutely everything, it so thoroughly stains even our best deeds that our best deeds are like a filthy rag in God's eyes. And so with that said, it's hard to imagine that he would rejoice over anything that transpires on earth. Jesus, however, wants us to know that there is something that causes not only God to rejoice, but all of heaven to rejoice. And thus, he tells three parables in the 15th chapter of Luke. He tells the parable of the lost sheep. Then he tells the parable of the lost coin. Then he tells the parable of the lost son, better known as the parable of the prodigal son. And today we're going to be looking at just the first one. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, as we study the first of these three parables, the parable of the lost sheep. And the main point of this passage is really the main point of the whole chapter. It's that Jesus came to seek and save what was lost and that all of heaven rejoices over what or or whom was lost and is now found. When the lost are found, it stirs God's heart. When the lost are found, it, it stirs God's heart. And of course, whenever we get a glimpse at what moves God's heart, what stirs God's heart, what God feels passionate and excited about, we want to take a minute to look at at our hearts too. For the sake of examining ourselves, because if we rejoice over something that God grieves over, something's wrong. We have something to worry about if we're rejoicing over something that grieves God. We have changes that need to be made, but a good spiritual diagnosis, spiritual health diagnosis, will, will test us to see if we rejoice over the same things that God rejoices over. If we value the same things that God values. If we love the same things that God loves. And it also makes sure that we hate the same things that God hates. So Luke sets the context for us in just the first couple verses of the chapter. Luke chapter 15. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The fact that Jesus would not only associate with sinners, 
but that he would hang out with them regularly, that he would dine with them regularly. That was something that really got the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, enraged, got them really worked up. They, they prided themselves in being righteous, right? And, and their idea of being righteous was they won't be contaminated by coming into contact or coming into close proximity even with sinners. They prided themselves in being completely separated, completely cut off from sinners. So separated that they were completely out of touch with the people who didn't live up to the moral standards held by the religious leaders. But this is what made them hypocrites. We have to understand what makes these people Hypocrites. The thing that made them hypocrites is that they considered themselves to represent God in society, to speak for God in society, but they were completely disconnected from God's heart. So on one hand, they're saying we're the closest thing to God on earth, and on the other hand, they are nothing like God. Their heart, their values, the things that they love, the things that they hate are so opposite the things that God loves and hates that it's just an act. The very best they can do is, is put on an act. They're hypocrites. The thing that made them hypocrites is that they professed to know God and to represent God, but they didn't. They professed that they were seeking to glorify God, but they didn't. They only sought to glorify themselves. And that's what makes them hypocrites. And so they're enraged that tax collectors and sinners are not only in close proximity to Jesus, but that He is hanging out with them. He's, he's breaking bread with them. Now, in our, in our day and age, it's not a bad thing to be a, a tax collector. If you work for the IRS, uh, you probably have a very comfortable life. You probably make a lot of money. But in Jesus' days, the tax collectors were viewed as the bottom of the barrel. You, you could not be a worse sinner than a tax collector because the tax collectors not only stole and extorted money from the people on behalf of the Roman Empire, they were working on the Roman Empire to take money from people who were their own people. They were taking from their families. They were taking from their family's friends and from their own friends, from their neighbors. So they were viewed as traitors. They were, the, they were the lowest of the low. They, they were the untouchables. You didn't want to know a tax collector. You didn't want to spend time with a tax, collectors, tax collector because these guys were the, not only were they sinners, they were the sinningest sinners around. And so the tax collectors and other sinners who were gathering around Jesus, not to extort from Him, not to do any kind of harm to Him, but to hear Him preach about the kingdom of God. And we know that this isn't just an isolated incident. This is something that happens throughout Luke's Gospel. It happens over and over and over again. That Jesus is hanging out with sinners and, and, and tax collectors. And it's making the religious leaders completely furious. And it's just becoming a bigger and bigger problem. This is something that we see throughout Luke's Gospel. But what's interesting to note is what even led to this point. Because it starts out with, now the tax collectors and sinners. Well, what happened before that? What led to the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to Jesus? If you look back to the previous chapter, look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. Luke, verses, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27, we read this. Now great crowds accompanied Him, Jesus, 
And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Man, that's pretty hard. That, that's pretty abrasive. He, he's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, you can't cross this unless. And in our day and age, you know, we'd say, well, Jesus, give him, a, give him a feel-good message. But he, instead of making them feel good about themselves, instead of propping up their self-esteem or giving them a watered-down gospel that was just designed to, to make the gospel an easier pill to swallow, Jesus draws this line in the sand and lets the people know that there is a great, great cost to discipleship. There's a great cost to following Him. But what we have to understand as we come into chapter 15 is that while these words were incredibly challenging, indeed, they are impossible to live up to in the flesh, it didn't drive the tax collectors and sinners away. It didn't push them away from hearing this message of the Gospel. Now you would think that this would be the worst strategy that Jesus could have possibly used if you were getting your evangelism strategies from one of the top ten books on church growth or evangelism today. You notice that Jesus doesn't preach a message that boils down to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Instead, He preaches an evangelistic message that tells them that following Him isn't going to improve their life, but that it's going to cost them their life. And so how did they respond to that? This is where you see the foolishness of modern evangelistic techniques. How did they respond? Look at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. They were drawing near to Him. They hear the terms and conditions. They hear the cost of discipleship. They hear the cost of following Christ. And they cross the line. They come to Him. They're drawn to Him. This message of the cost of following Christ didn't discourage the people. It drew them. It didn't intimidate them. It intrigued them. They weren't dejected. They were drawn. And the religious leaders were outraged. They're furious. And we can see the insanity in that, right? We can see how crazy it is that they would be so mad that Jesus is reaching out to the untouchables. And it's insane to see these types of things happening in our own day and age. And they do. It happens. There's, there's one very well-known pastor and theologian, some of you will know who he is, who's been reaching out to Muslims for years. He goes and he debates them wherever they are willing to meet. He preaches the Gospel in mosques. And he's so dedicated to reaching out to Muslims that he's even learned to speak and read Arabic. And there are some prominent people, some prominent evangelicals in our day and age who think that that kind of outreach, that reaching out to Muslims is a form of compromise. Muslims are our enemies, they'll say. And that is the type of hypocrisy that Jesus went after. That's the type of hypocrisy that Jesus hated, that Jesus confronted. Who do churches view as 
the lowest elements of society these days? Who do, who do churches view as, as the enemy these days? You know, some will say Muslims. Maybe some will say people who struggle with sexual identity. Whoever it might be. You know, maybe it would be people on the, on the political left who affirm Marxist ideologies. And maybe some within those descriptions are enemies of the church. But is that an excuse to withhold the gospel from them? Is that a justification to take the attitude that we don't need to be reaching out to those people because some of those people within those groups are hostile to Christianity? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. That is not a justification for not evangelizing, for not reaching out, for not caring, for not loving. Like the Pharisees and scribes, of Jesus' day, anybody who would say that we should stop reaching out to the lost is out of touch with God's heart. They're completely out of touch with God's heart. And I guess they either don't know or they don't believe in the joy that echoes throughout heaven when the lost are saved. And and so this, this rage that the Pharisees and the scribes have, this irrational fury that they feel toward Jesus doesn't go unnoticed. Jesus is completely aware of it. Apparently, he, he overhears them saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the accusation. That's, that's the charge that's being levied against Jesus. And if we see what they saw here, and we, we do, he, he's, he's receiving sinners, He's eating with them. We see that, they see that. And if we see that, the verdict really requires no deliberation. He's guilty. He is receiving sinners. He is dining with sinners. What they said, what they charged him with, was completely true. But was it really a crime? Was it something that the Pharisees and the scribes should have felt enraged over? Because there are things that we should feel enraged over. And is this one of them? And this is what sets the stage for these three parables in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. These are the next three parables that we're going to be looking at, but we're only going to be looking at the parable of the lost sheep today. This is a response to the accusation that we just saw. This is a response to the fury, to the animosity that we see in verse 1 and the the accusation that we see in verse 2. But before we even begin looking at this parable, there are two principles that echo throughout Scripture that we need to be mindful of. The first is this. God takes immense, immense, incredible, unfathomable joy in saving sinners. He is by His very nature a Savior. He loves to save sinners. And this is baffling. It's it's really incredible. It's, It's scandalous that a God who is righteous, who is holy, who is just, would take action to save and redeem the very rebels who would go to the grave as His enemies without a second of remorse, without a second of regret, without a second of repentance if God didn't shower his grace upon them. It is incomprehensible. 
that God would grant such grace so as to not only turn sinners away from their sin, but to turn them toward Himself. Because if you turn away from something, you've got to turn to something else. And God turns sinners not only from their sin, but toward Himself. Why does He do that? He doesn't need anyone for anything. So why does He save anyone? We can't know. But the fact that He does is A, it's clear in Scripture, and B, it is just mind-blowing. It's unfathomable. It's outrageous. It's unseemly for a God who is righteous, just, holy. It's scandalous. But God is, by His very nature, a Savior. From everlasting to everlasting, there is none like Him. And the act of imparting a new nature to a filthy sinner gives Him immense joy. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the act of granting a wicked, God-hating sinner repentance unto true saving faith gives Him immense delight. On one level, the religious leaders saw the world as consisting of two types of people, really. Boiling down to two types of people. Those who were clean, like themselves, and those who were unclean. But if you want to boil their, their worldview, their, their, their system down even further, you could say that they believed that there were some who were worthy of being saved, and some who were not worthy of being saved, in their opinions. And which side of the equation, which side of that coin, do you think they saw themselves on? One ancient rabbinical text said this. It said, quote, Let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him the law. End quote. I hope you see the implications of that. And may it be far from us to have the same mentality. The implications here are clear. The implication is that the wicked don't deserve to be saved. The implication is that only good, upright, Moral people deserve to even have a chance to be saved. The implication is that it's more important to be self-righteous. It's more important to be pious than it is to be compassionate or merciful or loving toward those who don't live up to the standards that the religious leaders had. So this parable is designed to do two things. First, it's designed to show us how the religious leaders and, and how and for us, how, how unreasonable their, their anger was. And secondly, it's to show us how differently God felt about the salvation of even one God-hating sinner who would be deemed unclean and unworthy and unlovable in the culture's eyes, in the eyes of the religious community. And of course, the irony here is that these religious leaders who felt so superior to the tax collectors and so superior to all these sinners were really just self-exalting, self-glorifying sinners themselves who didn't seek God, who didn't want God, who didn't love God. And that's what made them such hypocrites. They sought to glorify themselves instead of glorifying God. They sought to make themselves equal to God. They were self-glorifying sinners who thought they knew God, but they didn't know the first thing about God. They were so out of touch with His heart, they had no right to claim to represent Him in any way, shape, or form. 
They needed to hear Christ preach the gospel just as desperately, if not more so, than these other sinners who were drawing close to Jesus. But they were blinded by pride. They were blinded by self-righteousness. Christ came to seek and save the lost, and every person given to Him by the Father comes to Him, and He doesn't cast one of them out. So He dined with them, yes, guilty. He received them, yes, guilty. Oftentimes He would heal them. He preached to them. He redeemed them. He saved them. God takes immense joy in saving sinners. That's the first thing we have to know as we come to this parable. The second thing that I want us to see is that Jesus never participated in their sin, but He also never endorsed or approved or condoned the sins of the tax collectors or these sinners. There's a great lie in our culture today that says that love always affirms an individual's choices. That love means approving of whatever a person decides to do. Whether it's good or bad. It's what they want to do. So it needs to be celebrated, and to refuse to celebrate it then is the epitome of hatred as far as the culture is concerned. No, it's not. No, it's not. Friends, that is a lie from Satan. I I can't imagine anything to be further from the truth. To affirm or condone or approve of or, God forbid, encourage sin. To encourage an action which not only offends God, but which warrants eternal torment in hell is the most hateful thing that you can possibly do. You might say, well, that person just wants to be happy. I I just want them to be happy. Do you want them to be happy more than you want them to be redeemed? That's the question. The most hateful thing that you can do is approve of or encourage somebody's sin. You should be concerned with your own sin first and foremost, absolutely. There's no question about that. But it isn't loving to approve of somebody else's sin. It's hateful. Biblically, love does not rejoice over unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice over the sins of others. Biblical love rejoices in the truth, rejoices in righteousness. Biblical love requires that we go to the sinner and urge them to turn from their sin. Not out of a felt need that you might have to to be right and to put a person in their place, but because that's the Great Commission. That's obedience to Christ. That's obedience to Christ. That's what love would do. So Jesus broke bread with sinners. He received sinners. He spent time with sinners. But He didn't participate in their sins. He didn't endorse their sins. And by the way, that, uh, this, this, stories like this don't justify you going out and hanging out with sinners. If you think that these stories about Jesus going and spending time and dining with sinners is a, is a justification or that it gives you permission to go out and hang out with sinners, you're seeing yourself as the wrong character in the narrative. You're not Jesus. There's, there's a hint. But the truth of the matter is, there's no greater hope for us than this. There's no greater hope for you or me or for anyone else than this. We have a God who is a Savior 
And He saves even those who might win awards for being the vilest sinner imaginable. The most wretched sinner imaginable. The most undeserving of sinners. He takes great joy in saving sinners and washing them clean in declaring them perfectly righteous in His sight and removing the power of sin from their lives. He doesn't encourage sin. Friends, He frees people from sin. He doesn't encourage it. And how do you communicate a message like that to people who don't see themselves as being in need of a Savior? How do you communicate that to a hypocrite? To the Pharisees and scribes. You you do what Jesus did. You meet them where they are. Some of of Jesus' parables would reveal truth and some would conceal truth. In this one, He's revealing truth. He's meeting people what they are. He's going to give them a picture of something that they can relate to. Something that they can understand. So they can see how different their feelings about sinners are from God's. So let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Luke chapter 15. Verses 3 and 4. So He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now the idea of of sheep wandering and and getting lost wasn't foreign. It wasn't unusual. It it was well known in Jesus' time. In fact, it happened quite a lot because sheep just do that. They startle quite easily and, and, and they'll just, they'll go. It's not unusual for sheep to wander. It's not unusual in Jesus' time for shepherds to pursue lost sheep. Sheep are pack animals. And the time that they are at greatest risk is when they're not running with their pack, when they're off on their own, when they're isolated, when they are lost. Because they're not fighters. A sheep left to itself is going to fall prey to some kind of predator. It's just a matter of time. It's not a question of if. It's just a matter of time. And so a shepherd has only a very small window of time to save the sheep's life. There is safety in numbers. And that's a good thing for sheep because they are naturally drawn to exist together in numbers. They're not fighters, but they do stick together. Nevertheless, sheep sometimes do wander. And as the shepherd puts the sheep Uh, puts the sheep to rest at night in either a pen or a corral. He would count his sheep as they're coming in. One, two, three, four, you know, in this case, all the way up to a hundred is where he's aiming. So the hypothetical situation here is this. The shepherd is counting his sheep as they come in for the evening, and one is missing. There's supposed to be a hundred, but he only counts 99. So what's he supposed to do? Well, the the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody else knew what a shepherd was supposed to do. He would secure the 99 either in a corral or or in a pen or or give uh, give another uh, shepherd uh, possession of them, you know, responsibility for them while he goes out and pursues the one that's lost. This explains Jesus' motivation behind dining and spending time with tax collectors and sinners. This is the justification for his motivation, for what he's doing. He was in pursuit of the lost sheep. Jesus said in John chapter 10, He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He'd go on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And then he'd say, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's talking to some Pharisees and unbelieving religious leaders. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I have to wonder if he had Psalm 23 in mind as he was saying these things. He's talking about the good shepherd. Who's the good shepherd? Psalm 23, that's the good shepherd. So why was Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Because Jesus is the good shepherd. He was pursuing His sheep. He was calling out to His sheep. The second person of the Trinity, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through whom, for whom, and by whom all things exist, stepped out of eternity. He took on flesh, fully God, fully man, for the sake of finding His sheep, of seeking and calling out to and finding his sheep. Because the truth of the matter is that sheep won't come on their own. They're not smart animals, and I suspect that that's why we are often likened to sheep in Scripture. But just as sheep won't seek a shepherd, so too sinners will not seek God. Romans 3.11, none seeks God. And there are no exceptions. Sheep don't seek the shepherd. Sinners don't seek the Good Shepherd. We'll seek just about anything and and everything else, but we won't seek God on our own. Now someone might say, are you denying that we have free will? Of course I'm not denying that we have free will. Everybody has free will. What I'm saying is that free will only goes so far. What I'm saying is that free will allows you to do what you're able to do in accordance with your nature. Think about it this way. I can walk down the street. I can run down the street. I can crawl down the street. I could even probably figure out how to, you know, like a caterpillar or a snake, slither down the street. But what isn't within my nature is to grow wings and fly down the street. Why not? Because it's not within my nature. My nature doesn't allow me to sprout wings and fly down the street. And in the same way, fallen man will not, indeed fallen man cannot seek God because it is not within his fallen sinful nature to do so. To turn to God would be a good thing, right? And yet the Bible says, none is righteous, none does good. So if turning to God is a good thing, Nobody does it. Nobody. And so, the good shepherd must seek his sheep. And that's what Jesus was doing. And how does heaven respond when one sinner is saved? Jesus is going to give us a picture of that by relating it to the way that a shepherd would rejoice over finding a lost sheep. Jesus uses this this illustration 
to show us what moves God's heart, what stirs God's heart, what causes rejoicing throughout heaven. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. And when he has found it, when the shepherd has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So the shepherd wasn't ambivalent about finding a lost sheep. It wasn't as if it didn't matter to him one way or the other. He knew that it was a big deal. He knew that the clock was ticking as soon as one sheep was lost and that it was only a matter of time before it would be devoured by a predator. So it's not like the shepherd doesn't think it's a big deal when his sheep are recovered. No, it's a, it's a big deal. It's, it's a huge deal. The shepherd finds the lost sheep. He slings it over his shoulders, back back uh, feet on one shoulder, front feet on the other shoulder, and he carries it back with him. And what we need to understand about this picture is that the shepherd does the entire work of carrying the sheep, of finding it, of, of carrying it, and bringing it into the fold. This is all the work of the shepherd. The sheep doesn't do anything. The sheep just gets carried back. It's been noted that if a certain sheep would have a tendency to wander, the shepherd would break one of its legs and he'd carry that sheep until the leg healed. And during that time, the sheep would be very close to the shepherd's voice and the sheep would begin to find great comfort, great assurance, great safety in hearing the voice of the shepherd. And during that time, not only will the sheep become familiar with the voice, but it'll never go astray from that voice again. And so upon delivering the sheep into the safety of the fold, the shepherd is so overjoyed, he invites his friends, he invites his family, he invites his neighbors to come and rejoice with him. And the question that Jesus has for the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites and anyone else who's out of touch with God's heart is which one of you wouldn't do the exact same thing if that was you? It's a spiritually diagnostic question, isn't it? Which one of you wouldn't do the same thing? There are multiple times in the Old Testament in which God likens Himself to a shepherd. Psalm 23 is probably the most popular one. Isaiah 40.11 is another one. It says, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Or Jeremiah 31, verse 1, He who scattered Israel will gather Him and will keep Him as a shepherd keeps His flock. You know, these, these pictures are, these word pictures are beautiful. These passages give us a beautiful image of the way that God cares for His people as a shepherd cares for His flock. But the flow of this parable, the flow of this story that Jesus tells is really pretty simple. The sheep is lost, the sheep is sought, the sheep is found, and the sheep is celebrated over. And there's no room for, for disputing any of that. I'm sure that the Pharisees and the scribes would have loved to have disagreed and they would have loved to have debated Jesus and to really put Him in His place there in front of everybody. But Jesus has shut down any arguments. He's shut down any chance of debate happening. They'd be in complete agreement that this is the way a shepherd would feel. 
But here comes the twist in the story. All, all of his parables have a twist, at least from the perspective of the people that he's addressing. It would have been a twist in the story for the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now in reality, a shepherd probably wouldn't throw this extravagant party, this extravagant celebration over one lost sheep being recovered. But Jesus has added this element to the story to show us, to illustrate for us the immense joy that God takes in saving sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees saw no need for their own repentance. They're the 99 that heaven isn't rejoicing over. Because they think, I don't need to repent. That's what made them hypocrites. That's something that pride will prevent you from doing. But Jesus says that the joy that this shepherd, that this hypothetical shepherd would have in recovering a sheep is just a slight glimpse at the kind of joy, at the kind of rejoicing that takes place in God's heart when even one sinner repents when even one sinner turns from their sin and turns toward God, when even one person, one sinner, is saved. God is not ambivalent about saving sinners. He takes immense joy in saving sinners. He loves to save sinners. And when He does, all of heaven, Jesus says, all of heaven rejoices with Him. The question that this forces us to ask ourselves now is what about me? Do I rejoice over the things that heaven rejoices over? Part of the Christian life is learning to love what God loves and to hate what God's hate. The the purpose of the whole Christian life is to grow in the likeness of Christ, right? And how do you think you can do that? without aligning your values with the values of Christ. You can't. You can't. And it's not something that happens instantly. It's something that takes place throughout your whole life. And even then, you're not done. Jesus Himself will have to do it when we stand before Him one day. But this is a heart check. What do you love? What causes your heart to rejoice? What stirs your heart? Do you rejoice over the things that God rejoices over? See, if you rejoice over sin, whether it's your own or or somebody else's, this parable is not only for you, it's kind of about you. If you rejoice over sin, have, have you considered that you're the lost sheep in this parable? And if that's the case, I want you to know this. There's hope. There's hope. There's great hope. Because if that's that's you today, maybe, just maybe, you can hear the voice of the shepherd calling out to you today to repent of your sin, to turn from it, and to turn to Him. The shepherd is still seeking the lost. 
Not only does He seek the lost, but He laid His life down for them. He died in their place that they might have life in Him. Christ Jesus is the Good Shepherd who not only seeks His sheep, but He finds His sheep. Not only does He find them, but He restores them and He washes them clean with the power of His own blood shed on Calvary, where He took the sins of all of His people, of everyone who would place saving faith in Him. He took those sins upon Himself. And in exchange, He imputed His perfect righteousness to them so that they could stand before the Father blameless. As blameless as Christ Himself. As Paul famously wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, He, the Father, made Him, Christ, to, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, I... I firmly believe that the way to identify a sheep that is lost and being sought is when a sheep realizes that it's lost. And so if that's you to any extent today, I implore you to cry out to God and to throw yourself completely upon His mercy. To repent and to turn away from your sin. And not only turn away from your sin, but to turn to and believe in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts against Him. If you are stuck in a cycle of unrepentant sin, today is the day of salvation for you. If you continue to wander astray, being led by the flesh, it is only a matter of time before you die in your sin. But if you will repent and believe, you will live. And something amazing happens when one lost sheep is found. When one wretched, vile sinner is saved and redeemed by God. Not only does all of heaven rejoice, that is amazing, but the sheep become partners in recovering more lost sheep. And this is our calling. This is our calling as sheep who were lost and have been found. To know Christ. To know the Good Shepherd. And to make Him known. To proclaim the Gospel. To proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ alone to the ends of the earth, knowing that His sheep hear His voice and they follow Him. What you rejoice over says a lot about what you value. So how in tune are you today with God's heart? The London Baptist Confession of 1689 says this. It says, There's no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. That is beautiful news. That is beautiful news. There's no sin greater than God's grace toward those who repent. This parable is really an invitation to repent and to bring our values into alignment with God's values. It's an invitation for us to do what Jesus said in chapter 14. To deny ourselves. To take up your cross. To follow Christ. Valuing Him above everything else. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your great love in sending Christ, the Good Shepherd, to redeem the lost. We thank You, God, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, You bring us into Your fold. And we are amazed to know that it stirs Your heart. We are amazed to know that heaven rejoices when we do. And so we thank You, God, for being a God who loves us and who demonstrated it by sending Your only Son to redeem us. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to live lives that glorify You. Give us wisdom. Give us perseverance. Give us endurance as we go through this life to hear Your voice, to cling to You, and to become more and more like You in what we love and what we hate and what we rejoice over. We pray these things for the glory of Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me.